Welcome to season two of the US-China Nexus, taking stock of a global China. China today is a superpower anew and its footprint is ever expanding. I'm your host, Eleanor M. Albert, a research fellow with the initiative. In addition to this podcast, the initiative recently launched a bi-weekly newsletter, the US-China Dialogue Monitor, which draws on English and Chinese language sources with a focus on government statements and media reports. To subscribe to the newsletter, please visit the link to this episode. Now, on with the show. Today, we are joined by Raffaello Pantucci and Neva Yao. Raffaello Pantucci is a senior fellow at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, where he was formerly director of international security studies. He is the co-author of Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire, which draws on over a decade's research and travel around China, Central Asia, and the wider Eurasian heartland. His research focuses on terrorism and counterterrorism, as well as China's relations with its Western neighbors. He currently spends his time between London and Singapore. Neva Yao is a senior researcher at the OSCE Academy in Bishkek and Central Asia Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. Her work follows global China affairs with a particular focus on China's foreign policy, trade and security in its Western neighborhood, including Central Asia and Afghanistan. Originally from Hong Kong, Ms. Yao has been based in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan since 2018. She is a native speaker of Cantonese, Mandarin, English, and a learner of Russian. Raffaello and Neva, welcome to the show. I wanted to start off by asking you both how you entered this research space and how China factors into your research focus on Central Asia. Why don't we start with you, Neva, and then we can turn to Raffaello. Hello, everybody. I'm originally from Hong Kong, and towards the end of my university years, one of my last university credits, I took a summer exchange program to the American University of Central Asia, which is based in Bishkek, where I met my current boss, and it just really snowballed from here. I've always had an interest in Chinese foreign policy, but back then it was mainly on Southeast Asia. So when I first started doing this, I was learning as I go, but there's a lot of things going on in the region. It's very dynamic. A lot of things are changing and quite understudied. So it just became a fascinating last couple of years. Great. How about you, Raffaello? I was always very interested in kind of Central Asia more broadly. But then in, I think it was 2009, I got an opportunity to move out to China and live there for some time. And at the time, I was doing a lot of research on terrorism more generally. So I moved to China and I started doing research on terrorism in the country. I went out to Xinjiang and tried to sort of understand what was happening there. And as I was doing this research, I discovered that it was a very difficult subject to research because it's quite a closed subject for many obvious reasons. But then also I discovered when I went out to the region, responding to this particular problem, terrorism was really changing China's relations with these neighboring countries in Central Asia. So I started doing more research on that, got some grants, managed to travel out to the region, and I went on from there. Great. Let's dig right into the core of the matter here. So the Belt and Road Initiative was launched from Kazakhstan almost a decade ago, and Xi Jinping's first post-COVID visit was also to Kazakhstan. 
how is China's regional presence viewed in Central Asia? Is there a consensus across the region? Kazakhstan comes up a lot because I think it's one of the big power brokers, but it is certainly not alone. How do some of these countries respond to this looming large neighbor in China? Let's start with you, Raffaello, and then we'll turn to Neva. There's no single response, frankly, to China in the region. At the end of the day, all of these countries have had a relationship with China since their creation. The other Soviet Union, suddenly they were five new countries, three of which shared a border with China. The ones that shared a direct border with Russia joined something called the Shanghai Five, which is basically an attempt to define and delineate the borders that they share. So that started shaping their relationship with China. It's been a fairly amicable shift and it's changed over time. I would say that the interesting thing that changed over time is really China in many ways. Because when you look at their early days in the 1990s, when these countries came into being, and China is a very different country. It was still facing international isolation after the Tiananmen massacre. The Chinese economy is nowhere near what it was today. You have vast poverty across long parts of the inland. And so it was a very different relationship. What's happened is over time, you've seen that relationship has transformed. And the balance of power has really shifted. That's the most pressing thing, but it varies from country to country. Kazakhstan's always had a particular place because of its size, its hydrocarbon wealth, and its position within Central Asia. But, you know, I'd argue that in many ways, it's been ahead of a pack, which has basically always been moving roughly in the same sort of direction. Your thoughts, Neva? I very much agree with what Rafael said. I'll just add on some of the dynamics between what we can call the older population and the younger population in the region. When we talk about how China is perceived or when we talk about Sinophobia, is there's always a very sharp contrast between how the young people think about China versus what the older Soviet-educated generation think about China. When you talk to the older generation of Central Asians about China, actually, China is a very strange country because they weren't very much exposed to China things. They didn't grow up with cheap Chinese products the way that the younger generation did. And much of what they remember actually was the Sino-Soviet split. So they remember Soviet poems about China, about the Chinese people. The images that they have is quite negative still. Whereas over time, the younger generation is much more exposed to China via social media, via scholarships, via Confucius centers, or even schools that would just start to teach Chinese language and teach little bits of pieces of Chinese culture. Here and there, events organized by the embassy, things like that. They have a lot more information and access to know about China. And China today is very different from the parents, their grandparents' generation. China today is very developed compared to Central Asia. Images of high-speed trains or shopping malls or drama, you know, TV is very appealing to the young people. Now, I think one of the biggest game changer here is also the Bet and Road Initiative. Because before the Bet and Road Initiative, when people think of China as a country, they think of China as a place that is densely populated, that is very developed, but they didn't really have an association of what China does in Central Asia until the Bed and Road Initiative came and it changed everything. And the connotation of the Bed and Road Initiative is that China is bringing investments, China is improving infrastructure in the region, China will connect Central Asia to the world. So all of a sudden, there is no talking about China in the region without talking about the Bed and Road Initiative. It's been quite a positive success. That transitions us really well to talking about the policy areas that bind China to Central Asia, but also trying to explore what some of these wedge issues might be. What are some things that have changed over time, especially as the balance of power between China and this region has shifted? There's energy to talk about, there's economic development, as we just touched on with Belt and Road projects. What links China? 
how have some of these links changed? And, and are there issues that are potentially driving a wedge? Are there policy areas that might generate some backlash in Central Asian countries? The important thing to always think about with China's relations with Central Asia is the fact that there are large numbers of Central Asian ethnic people living in China. And people immediately assume I'm talking about Uyghurs, and that's certainly true. There is a large Uyghur community that lives in China that shares a sort of culture, ethnicity, and history that's closer to Turkic Central Asian peoples than it is to Han Chinese. But beyond that, there's a million ethnic Kazakhs that live in China. There's large communities of ethnic Tajiks and ethnic Kyrgyz. And in Central Asia, there are communities of Han Chinese. There is a human connection that exists and that has existed a long time and that predates sort of modern borders that we're talking about. It reflects the fact that when you go back and look at this entire region's history, it is peoples that were spread across this entire space. The region has a cultural history that goes back much further than 1949 when the PRC came to be and more recently the end of the Soviet Union when we saw the current national borders in Central Asia being defined. So there is a deep history that goes back there and that impacts the relationship because it means that there is a human connection link that always exists between the two. So that will always influence things. In terms of change over time, the big issue for me in some ways is the transformation of China's role and China's position as a player on the world stage and as an economic force and economic power. And that's changed in some ways the Central Asian interest and appetite and link to China. Historically, this region is a region that's 30 years young. Before that, they were all part of the Soviet Union. So all their infrastructure, all their economic logic in many ways goes north to Russia. That change, the big change has been that China is an important partner to them all become much more relevant. And it's become much more relevant to a very senior official level because governments can see this is a great opportunity they want to connect with. But also, I'd argue, at a public level as well. But I think where I maybe would diverge from the public view that we sometimes see, which says that this is a tool that the Chinese have used to hold over all of these countries, I'm not entirely sure that's true in the sense that I think the logic of it from an economic perspective is natural. It seems obvious to me that they would have a relationship with this sort, and it would become a more significant one because at the end of the day, they're saying it's the world's second largest economy. So it's natural that they would have some sort of connection, want to have a greater connection. The complexity from their perspective is how do they manage that and actually manage to continue to ensure their particular interests rather than being overwhelmed by this giant that sits next door and becoming entirely dependent on China in a way that some really are now on some specific issues really reduces their maneuverability. Could you touch on what some of those interests are for specific countries in dealing with China and how they try to protect some of their agency from being overwhelmed by the size of China? Kazakhs are probably a good example of a country that has tried to strike this balance and they use the economic heft. The fact that they've got this hydrocarbon wealth, they sell it in various directions, sell to lots of people. The fact that you got others purchasing the hydrocarbon wealth as well. The Kazakhs sell a growing volume of their hydrocarbon wealth to China, but they also sell a lot over to Europe. Historically, there were lots of links to Russia, but the Kazakhs have done a more convincing job, let's say, than some of the others of actually trying to strike some sort of a balance. If instead we look at a country like Turkmenistan, they have one big thing that they sell, which is gas. And frankly, they've got themselves into a real situation where the only real client they purchase it from them is China. And so when you see the Chinese economy contract or Beijing CMPC, the main actor, decide that it doesn't need to buy as much gas from them or would like to get the price shifted, they struggle in some ways to strike against that because they've got themselves into a kind of a dependency situation. 
This drives a lot of Turkmen thinking when they try to develop other options. Recently, we saw Sardar Budimuhamedov visit Moscow and his father as well. Both of them talking to Alexei Miller, the head of, of Gazprom, to try to reopen the connections up there. You see them talking a lot about TAPI, the idea of building a Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline, which frankly I think is for the birds. But they're very keen to do that because then this would be another option for them. So I think in those two, you've got an example of countries that have very important hydrocarbon wealth as a driver of their economy. But being able to manage that and the relationship with China in a slightly different way. The importance of diversification. Neva, do you want to chime in about some of the wedge issues might be? It's not just amicable all the time. There are things that create tension. There are several points of tension, but I think how the region view China, perception of China is definitely something that is evolving and is something that is constantly tilting to positive and negative depending on the subject. For example, I think a lot of populations in in this region they actually understand and they believe and they know the treatment of the ethnic minorities in Xinjiang through friends or family that they have across the border. Populations here are actually relatively small compared to say Southeast Asia. So it's very easy that in a village you would have somebody that's been to China who's seen something or who's heard something. So not necessarily from news. We don't see populations here mobilizing, showing their discontent on China's policy in Xinjiang. You don't see that, and you don't see that mostly because this is Central Asian government policy to agree with China's anti-terrorism policy, so to speak. And you don't see populations mobilizing at all. But what you do see is that as Central Asian populations adopt a more Islamic approach to their national identity, to a point where across the board in these societies, the most popular opinion makers are mostly religious figures. You start to have religious discourse dominate a lot of what people perceive about China. So immediately, while people are able to say that you know the Chinese economy is growing. Very fast. Chinese economy is very large. People are very hardworking. All positive things, right? But then they would add, and they will always add. But the Chinese people, the food they eat is not halal, and it's a point where people see themselves as distance from China, distance from the Chinese people. The sense of closeness just isn't there. And the second thing that really is growing consistently is the fear of China taking land from Central Asia. Particularly because the populations perceive that in cases like that before in Tajikistan and in Kyrgyzstan with corrupt regimes and loans that are unable to pay back, they perceive that those deals were associated to land concessions to China. I think in recent years, especially in the past couple of years, the cases in Bhutan and in Nepal doesn't really. Give these countries a reassurance that China is a country that doesn't take land. I think this is something that China is not able to actually reverse this thinking, and it's quite apparent that China, with a lot of the economic projects, is able to buy a lot of favorable views, and it's been very successful. and And everybody here will agree, China economy is very successful. Investments are bringing jobs, all these things, but there are still underlying societal embedded issues that are still quite difficult in terms of bilateral. Relationship between China and these countries. Great, that's a natural segue again to ask about the political dynamics within some of these countries. There are politics everywhere, regardless of the type of governing society that is overseeing a country's governance. And I was just curious if any of these countries have had issues where the position of elites、uh, vis-a-vis China has been politicized domestically. 
How has that manifested and have there been any ramifications? I think Central Asian countries, as they each of them have evolved, are dropping in their rating on freedom of speech, freedom of press, all these things. So naturally, we don't see so much of societal mobilization of discontent against the government on a lot of issues already. But it is definitely a narrative that people make fun of certain politicians that they are, you know, co-opted with Chinese, they are in China's pockets. It's definitely a narrative that's quite popular, particularly on the internet. It's not particular positions per se. Most of the time is associated with corruption. The political space in the region is controlled up to a point. The senior government level, there has always been a desire to engage with China because they see the economic upsides. In some cases, they see it in a very personal way. So they're very keen to drive the relationship forwards. And that doesn't always translate at a public level where people don't necessarily see the same benefits. And I think what's interesting is the degree to which you've seen over the years that public tension, which you can find more immediately in the countries that directly share a border with China than the ones that do not. And even that's changed over time. Now, what you've seen in some cases is the level of public complaint you have and anger you see does impact projects. We can see in Kazakhstan, there's been a number of big land deals that the government's had to walk away from, that the government was quite keen on because the levels of public protest were such that they felt that they couldn't push it through or they had to reconsider and redo it in another way. In Kyrgyzstan, you've had a similar level of complaint and it's had an impact at a strategic level. There was some big multimodal regional infrastructure hub that they were going to build, which they had to walk away from because the pushback was so strong locally that the Chinese company says it's just not worth our trouble. But then there's kind of another side to that as well, which you do see, and Kyrgyzstan is a good example where this happened, where you have local power brokers, frankly, who will see a Chinese company as a rent-seeking opportunity. So they'll stir up local anger against the company to get a whole crowd to show up to complain. That then generates the company having to pay someone off, and then suddenly that problem magically goes away. And in some cases, the root causes of these protests are based in some sort of local anger, for example, environmental despoiling, in some cases, local employment complaints. But in other cases, they're not. And they're just artificial things that have been set up. There's kind of a complicated relationship between the public and China. And it does, in some cases, filter all the way back into the government to government relations. I remember talking to Kazakh officials years ago who I put this question to them and their response was, yep, this is an issue. We know it's an issue. We have to manage around it. In a way, it's it's positive because it shows that the governments are responsive to their publics to some degree. But I don't want to over-exaggerate that because I think if the government still wants a project to go through, they will find a way of making it happen. But it does impact things. And I think from the Chinese company's perspective, it's not an easy environment to always operate in. And at the end of the day, in some of these companies, you have to think about the fact that they've got people they've deployed to actually do it. And if the people aren't able to do the project, then the whole thing doesn't work. And so this kind of tension does definitely exist. If you were to broadly simplify, it's the government level, there's always, broadly speaking, a pretty positive relationship, but at the public level, there isn't always. And that spins on a number of different issues, including domestic dynamics. The locals will just be angry at the government, but they can't express anger towards the government. So they express anger towards the Chinese who are very close to the government, and that's their way of, by proxy, having a go. We've talked a lot about bilateral relations that China has with the countries that make up this region, but there are, of course regional organizations that take some role in facilitating regional relations. 
The Shanghai Cooperation Organization was in large part born out of negotiations about the borders of these new Central Asian countries after the fall of the Soviet Union, as we've talked about. How does the SCO fit into China's relationship to the region? Does it have a role? What areas does it operate in at a regional level? Raf and I actually recently published a paper together on how the SCO is shifting its focus to digitalization and how basically sitting on top of e-commerce, China has been able to actually push for a lot of digital changes in the region, which it has already been doing that bilaterally, but through the SCO particularly, it has really been driving a lot of that effort, particularly during the pandemic when people weren't able to have face-to-face meetings. There was still a lot of meetings that were going on offline between SCO countries and Chinese tech companies. For me, one of the most successful element of the SCO is being able to frame the three evils, right? Like the anti-terrorism, anti-separatism, and anti-extremism, that these issues are deeply concerning for China regarding Xinjiang. And via the SCO, it's actually been able to regionalize the issue and to manage the narratives around Xinjiang on a very deep and regular basis. And by deep, I mean the SEO mechanism provides heads of states of SEO to meet face-to-face every single year. So that's already a very close relationship. SCO is only one of those occasions where China meets Central Asian states, right? When you have BRI forum and you have out-of-state visits and you have events that are going on in China, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, Nazanbayev went to China three, four times in a year. These are very important mechanisms to actually keep your bilateral relations really warm. And then you can talk about a lot of practical deepening relations. But it's not just heads of states. The SEO also, as a dialogue platform, put together heads of governments, defense ministers, law enforcement ministers and heads of intelligence agencies. All of these meetings are incredibly important for China. Before the SEO, China didn't really have a direct access to Central Asian leaders and Central Asian security officials. Russia have always had a closer relationship with these officials because they were basically all trained in Russia. China never had that relationship. And SEO is the platform mainly a successful foot in the door, so to speak, for China to build such a relationship over time with Central Asian leaders. So this has been one of the most important factors for China's narrative management. But of course, practically speaking, there's also tons of things that the SEO does as well. Many are not so transparent, but it's definitely on the ground. You can actually feel that SEO is a big organization because many people, when you ask about China-Central Asia law enforcement cooperation, many will refer to some SEO level cooperation. They'll refer to some legal document or this is done under the SEO framework. Over time, we see that the SEO is expanding. Now we see digitalization, but before digitalization, it was legal training for Central Asian judges and things like that. Raffaello on the SEO. The SEO is, is a fascinating organization, I think, because it's so large and has only grown in its 20 years existence and yet done in some ways so little. Looking at it from a Chinese perspective, we have a habit of exaggerating that because this is just one of China's platforms for engagement with this region. What I've always noted is that if you look at the big summits then or the big meetings that happen, what invariably happens is you see a lot of bilateral engagements also happening. And often the real business that China wants to achieve is achieved at a bilateral level. The SEO is just a convening forum, which brings the whole lot together and then they get stuff resolved at the bilateral the truth is within the SEO, people just don't really agree on a lot of issues. The paper that even me wrote was looking at digitalization within the SEO. 
Our point was to say that the interesting thing to observe the degree to which economic activity and a growing harmonized economic activity had come about through the digital engagement, which you'd seen China have been trying to get the organization to do in lots of other ways for years. China's been talking for years about creating a free trade area in the SEO. They've been talking for years about creating a joint development account, creating all sorts of economic tools. And that was ultimately always the Chinese interest. They thought the SEO will be a vehicle for everything. But the one thing they could all agree on was counterterrorism. This is why counterterrorism becomes the initial issue, which you see them all grouping around. When the SCO comes about, the SCO, of course, is born from the Shanghai Five, which is initially a border delineating exercise between China and the new countries it shared a border with from the former Soviet Union. And then with Uzbekistan's journey in 2001, it changed into the SCO. Noting that, of course, in June 2001, when the organization was created, then September of that year, of course, September 11 happened, which transformed everything. And it was interesting to see how the SCO engaged with that. And rather than the organization coming together at that point, what you actually saw was an awful lot of the Central Asians start to forge bilateral relations with the United States, which undermined theoretically some of the agreements and discussions they'd had within the SCO format, which shows how transactional the approach was. I think China saw from quite early on that that was true, but I think from their perspective, they thought, so what? We continue to engage with this forum, and they have. And I think a lot of regional powers actually quite like it. The recent summit that we saw, I was in Tashkent shortly after the Samarkand summit. What was striking there was the degree to which you had the Uzbeks talking about how much they had driven the agenda for the session. Now, what was actually achieved is a very good question. In tangible terms, the SEO itself didn't do much except host a wonderful meeting in Samarkand. You did see some deals signed, but they were signed at a different bilateral level and the vehicle, the entity becomes a convening thing. But I think from China's perspective, that's fine because they're happy to have any tool that they can to engage with the region. And actually, I think the Central Asians probably don't mind the SEO, but I think what they probably all appreciate is the fact that it's constructed in such a way. It's very similar to the European Union in some ways in the sense that everyone has veto power. So if anyone doesn't want something to happen, it doesn't. But this also means that you see the organization do very little because they don't really agree on much, frankly speaking. The Chinese seem happy with that because they still get a platform to engage with. And as Niva points out very correctly, we mistake it by just thinking about the big heads of state summit. There's ministerial level summits at every level, and there's working groups that cover a whole wide range of issues. And they might not actually achieve much in a lot of these, but they do provide another touch point. There's actually a lot of power in shaping a narrative. From this, we've talked about the region, we've talked about bilaterally. And so I wanted to bring in the U.S.'s relationship to the region, and if it has any effect on the region's ties with China. I think about this particularly in the context of Afghanistan, because the U.S. presence had been there for so long. How does the U.S. factor in here? Rafaela? The U.S. is Bigfoot wherever it goes. The U.S., by sheer size, means that it always becomes a kind of immediate player. But the thing about Central Asia is that the problem with US policy towards the region has always been it comes and goes. The interest waxes and wanes. And for a long time, it was very heavily determined by events in Afghanistan. And then it dropped off. Now it seems to be picking up again. We can see the US increasing volumes of security engagement in the region. And a lot of it's still interested in Afghanistan. But there is an element of China interest starting to bump in there as well, because the U.S. recognizes Central Asia's interesting position between China and Russia. And the region talks a lot about wanting outside powers to engage with it. They talk about having this multi-vector foreign policy where they strike a balance between all these different players. The problem with the United States has always been its fickleness of its approach, the come-and-go attitude and the frustrations that they have. The Central Asians will say, so, well, look, the Americans will come, the Americans will go, China and Russia will always physically be here. 
Of course, you can look at energy relations. American energy companies have been reacting in Kazakhstan since the, before the Soviet Union, and they've continued to be players there. On the security side, it has shifted. In the wake of the Andijan massacre in Uzbekistan in 2005, you saw a real drop in Uzbek-US relations. But then that picked up again a few years later when the you know, Department of Defense recognized they needed the Northern Distribution Network to get their equipment out of Afghanistan. I think the problem with the US is that it's always going to be a big player, but it's always going to have this reputation in some ways of being fickle and disinterested and not necessarily reliable partners recognizing that at the end of the day, it's still going to be in between China and Russia, and also in between Iran, which is the most important country to think of in this context because of the heavy negative relations that the US has with Iran. So you've got a region that wants to engage with the US and does engage with the US, but is entirely surrounded by countries that at the moment are locked into a conflict with the United States. Geography does matter to some degree, I'm afraid. So. Neva? American policy on the region has always been very focused on Afghanistan. I mean, even today, a lot of the elements are still quite Afghanistan-oriented. But this is changing a little bit. Central Asian countries find certain projects and certain attractiveness in working with Western actors like U.S. and Europe. Europe is also becoming a serious player now in Central Asia. Recently, they've sent one of the highest level of delegations to Samarkand, a huge EU connectivity conference connecting Central Asia to the EU. This idea is very attractive to Central Asia, but the problem is precisely what Rafael said. This region is cushioned between Russia, China, and Iran. These are very difficult actors for the West to deal with. And how do you then work in a region that is sandwiched between these three countries? Logistics matter, human mobility matter, and all these things make working on the ground very difficult. Now, why I would say it's changing is because particularly when you look at U.S. approach to Central Asia, it opened the U.S. aid program in Uzbekistan only a year or two years ago. This is extremely new. And also this reflects Central Asian states' willingness to accept Western assistance, so to speak. Assistance very strong, but human capacity. There's a lot that Western actors can offer, not just at a human level, but also on an institutional level, bringing Central Asia to the international system, helping Central Asian countries actually get on board and become members of the World Bank. These are all extremely new things to Central Asia because this region is entirely not integrated with the international community. There's still many aspects that the West can explore, but it's taking time. But, you know, at least now we've come to a period where U.S. and Europe at the same time are committed to this region. So we've touched on these countries that have a passing desire to be engaged here. China is the newer actor to be engaged, but there's a historical legacy of the Soviet Union and that means that Russia has a long connection to a lot of these countries. How does the Russia dynamic fit into China's relationship with the region? Russia with the war in Ukraine is increasingly isolated on the international stage, but it is directly geographically connected to this region as well. How are these dynamics playing out? The wars going on in Central Asia suffering is still evolving. But I think there's one thing that Russia has brought to Central Asia, and that's instability. This level of instability at the global stage is one thing, but as a region that is already underdeveloped and is still looking for a path to development, is been holding on to the idea of stability for such a long time. And for it to have to overcome issues with currency, sanctions, and how to avoid sanction when you trade so much with Russia is a real headache. And it's not something that Central Asia countries want at all. 
without talking about all the labor migrants in Russia or all these very concrete issues and now Russian migrants in Central Asia. It just really opened up the space to see that China could be the one that provide. That being said, I think Central Asian countries are also watching the global tension as they involve and they were aware of the issues that the U.S. and the West have with China over Xinjiang or over Taiwan. These are very uncertain issues for Central Asian states who are quite detached from global affairs. But global affairs of today is directly impacting their biggest trading partners and their biggest neighbors. It's a very nervous time for Central Asia, which made all the high-level visits from the U.S. and from Europe reassuring to Central Asia that they're not being left behind. They're also not just being approached. They're also going out. Some of the newer approaches that Central Asia has done is reach out more to South Asian states and Arabic states. Parts of states in the region have increasingly shown religious expression, Islamic expression. They've been going to Mecca. They've been doing a lot more Islamic speeches in public. And the way that they have started to trade a lot and actually run not just business projects, but also religious projects with Arabic states is quite telling that Central Asian states are aware that Russia and China could continuously be caught in this worsening global tension and they have to find other reliable partners. There is a definite change or a new tension between Russia and its relations with Central Asia. The war in Ukraine was not something that was widely popular. You can find people in the region who are sort of very pro-Russian nationalists, but the majority generally are not. The region has always had a concern about Russian adventurism and Russian nationalism. You can see this back in the 2008 invasion of Georgia, and you can see it in the 2014 invasion of Ukraine, and now in the more recent one as well. It's consistently something the region has been quite anxious about. That really does underpin regional considerations and concerns, because on the one hand, there's that concern, but on the other hand, there's all the issues that Neva pointed out, the strong economic links that still exist. Labor migration alone is a huge economic driver. Remittances account for a third or half of GDP in some cases in, in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Millions of Central Asians go to work in Russia because they have visa-free access, and that's all money that floods back. And so when you see the Russian economy contract, it's those jobs that get lost in that. And so there's an immediate knock-on effect that you can see. There are advantages as well, by the way. As Russia gets cut off from the global system, it's quite easy for Russian companies to move into Central Asia instead rebrand themselves and then set up operations there. I think the key thing is that they have always got a connection with Russia, but the predictability and the reliability of Russia as a partner is something that you can see a lot of them questioning a lot more now than really they did before. The big issue the region has, it's kind of stuck a bit. They would like to have more options and they worry that they don't. This is where the West is such an important player in terms of other actors in the region. Now, I know Neva has a positive view of India as a player in the region, but I'm much more cynical and sceptical about it because I've seen, frankly, Indian leaders repeatedly come into office with grand discussions of engaging in Central Asia, and I've never seen it come to anything. I think the region will welcome it. They don't know what other options they have, and they're constantly trying to find them. They're always going to be stuck because they're always still going to have a tie to Russia, notwithstanding whatever links they build abroad. And so... From the Western perspective, the difficulty is we want to engage, but we worry about their links, but they're never going to be able to sever that link. It's going to take generations before they really can. And even then, I think they won't be able to entirely. Moscow is always going to be an important player there. And others will come and be significant in China in particular will be, but Moscow will always be a very relevant player. To conclude, I want to ask you to put on little prognosticator hats and look towards the future. If you had to identify one or two 
developments in this region as it relates to China and Central Asian affairs? Is there something that you are particularly watching or something that particularly concerns you, Neva? Something that I'm certainly watching is the development on social media, because this region is very young. Half of the population is below 32 years old, and people have huge families. Everybody is on mobile phones, you know, they're on cheap Huawei. I think social media has been so incredibly significant because we know that the algorithm on most of these apps, be they TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, they are always favoring very short videos that are already popular around the world. These are Chinese-made videos that are very simple. They could be live hacks. They could be showing village life in China. And these are very powerful images. And they're not posted by ambassadors or officials or anything. These are just regular Chinese accounts, videos that get reposted in different languages, or even sometimes just background music, skits. The way that these short videos open the eyes of people in the region to China, and you sit at home and that this is all the access you have, is quick, is easy. This is something that actually really strike me as a very significant inroad that China has made. Honestly, I don't think it's a conscious policy even. It's just happened. The algorithm just favors short, simple videos. And most of the people that I talk to, they don't even search for these videos. They just show up, not even as ads. And these videos, actually, they make a significant impact on what people think about China because men would tell you that, and these are old men, they would say that China, they're building really fast highways. They build it in such a short time. And because, you know, in the video, they speed it up and it looks really in- incredible. And it's very simple things that are very eye-catching. It's not a grand political security factor that, that I'm offering you, but social media changes the perception of China so much and is going to continuously change that in the next five to 10 years. I would not be surprised if in our next 10 years, we would have an entire region that is actually very favorable towards China because of just the sheer amount of what they consume about China that is entirely positive. When there is so much of positive and so little negative information actually gets to Central Asia about China, the way that the perception is going to change is already changing at a really rapid rate. And this is going to have impact on the way that policymakers in this region can work more with China. Students will go more to China. There'll be more people who are willing to do businesses, cooperation in in many different areas, sciences, environment, water. China will be able to make such an advance because of this perception precisely. Great. Rafaela? We have a habit, I think, of looking at China's relations through the region through some pretty big, obvious lenses. And most often I hear people say, oh, well, it's all about resources. It's all about the mineral wealth in the region that China wants. But I think there's a web of relationships that go in all other directions as well, which are going to shape the region in a really interesting way going forward. For me, the one thing I'm really interested in is the degree to which we see China actually becoming a player in the region in terms of asserting its interests and also in terms of trying to resolve some of the problems in the region. Since the beginning of the year, we've had major instability that's led to the deaths of people in four of the five countries. And the fifth country is Turkmenistan, where frankly, information is very limited. My point is, we've had people dying because of unrest, including clashes between states that we've seen between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Who's going to come in and try to resolve these? The region is struggling with some of these issues. And 
the history was that they would think of Russia, even though Russia actually did very little in terms of trying to do this kind of stabilizing role. But I think what you're going to see is as China becomes the dominant economic player in a whole range of different ways, you'll see a desire by the region, an expectation that China will come in and try to do something or say something about this. And I think Beijing is going to be very reticent to do that. But at a certain point, because the logic of China's relations with the region is very heavily based on a foundation of trying to create stability and prosperity at home in Xinjiang, which is a really important and difficult region for Beijing to manage, I think there's going to be an interesting tipping point where China will find itself obligated to get dragged into some of these regional issues and how they try to resolve them, I think is going to be really interesting. Our show is created and produced by Eleanor M. Albert. Our music is from Universal Production Music. Special thanks to Toya Ulan, Sherman Tong, and Amy Vandervliet. For more initiative programming, videos, and links to our events, visit our website at uschinadialogue.georgetown.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform.